The old pilot's plain tales in Flanders fields. Waiting for hard-boiled eggs in the mess. They want us in the air immediately and send a Crosley to drive us to our planes. I'm angry because I didn't get breakfast. In the air, climbing southeastward as the sun breaks, we found the Hun, but he saw us coming and retreated before we could get into range. Outrun by the faster German plane, we circled around and headed north. I climbed to 10,000 feet and came back around to see if the Hun had returned. He did, and we dived on him again, but this time Archie opened up and exposed the sneak attack before we even got close. The Hun gets away a second time. Frustrated, we fly further north, trying to find something to sneak up on. Finally, we see two LVGs 700 feet below us, coming directly our way. Two seaters are tricky, and in a pair, the rear gunners can be punishing. We swing to the east to isolate a single plane and make a side attack. As we swing wide, Archie traced our path, ruining our surprise. Suddenly, the Archie stops. I know what that means. I see a swarm of ten Hun scouts in the distance against the clouds. They're already firing from far away, must be inexperienced, and we dive towards our lines. The fighters were Albatross D3s, and they were gaining rapidly. Tracer fire is starting to zip over my shoulders. I look back a second time, and balls of white Archie open up right in front of them. Our Archie has come to the rescue. When we reach a thousand feet, the enemy planes have pulled off. We cloud hop to the east, getting deeper behind enemy lines, and find another DFW right below us. My wingman and I dive on him. He doesn't see us, so I'm patient this time, waiting until I'm at two hundred feet. When the plane fills my oldest, I fire twenty rounds in short bursts. The startled rear gunner quickly turns and starts firing back at us fiercely. The DFW starts to dive, and I pursue him in an almost vertical dive. I try to keep firing, but my gun jams. I keep one hand on the joystick, controlling the dive, and grab the hammer from its leather strap with the other and start wailing on my vickers, trying to break it loose. Gun still jammed. I finally pull out. On my way back, with the sun up and massive cumulus cloud cover, I get a few minutes of joyous flying. My wingman and I dive and climb, exploring the dark crevices and vertical cliffs of the cloud cover. As I landed at Sea Flight Hangar, the flight commander waves me over and tells me to get my guns reloaded. They need me to fly an escort for a BE-2E, doing an emergency photo recce quite a way over enemy lines. They were going to leave in ten minutes. We follow the BE pilot to the front, flying at an uncomfortably low 5,000 feet. There was a lot of Archie, and I'm surprised the pilot makes no evasive manoeuvres at all, just calmly flies through the explosions. His indifference to the danger was a sign of someone who had become hardened to the risks and was just trying to complete his assignment. Almost 15 miles into German territory at low altitude, I constantly twist my head to the left and right, watching for the Hun. 
The BE pilot methodically completes his recon route, taking photographs while we circle overhead. As we head back home, I finally see what I expected all along. Four albatross fighters to the east, catching up with us fast. I make ready for a fight, but I know we are done for. To my astonishment, the albatrosses do not level out, but dive right past us and do not come back. No idea why. As we approach the lines, Archie is punishing. It seems like half the Archie in France is pointed up at us. High explosive shrapnel, flaming onions, the whole lot. The shells burst so close, it pushes my pup sideways and stings my eyes. The BE pilot continues to fly straight, unconcerned about the risks. As we cross the trenches at 4,000 feet, we're clear of the Archie and our escort is over. The B pilot and his gunner wave at us as they head back to their base to the north. We make it back to our aerodrome in fine spirits. What we didn't know is that the B pilot had been injured by the flak. He passed out on the way back to his aerodrome, lost control of his aeroplane, clipping the cables on one of our balloons. The airplane dove into the ground, killing the pilot, the gunner, and destroying the films. After having clapped up all my pilots from the remains of a greasy breakfast, we all walked down to the sheds. It was a glorious dawn, but no one took any notice of it. We were all far too bleak to speak to each other, except one Canadian who was hearty, as he always was on every possible occasion. Sometimes we all cursed him for it. On occasions, everyone was grateful to him for unveiling humour at times when none of us could see any. We ran up engines, taxied out and took off, and got formation over the aerodrome at about 1,500 feet. I led the patrol away from the lines, climbing hard, turned east again, struck the lines at about 9,000 feet, and started our patrol. When coming down south, I saw two two-seaters about five miles over Hunland. I had a look into the sun for scouts lurking high up, ready to pounce on us when we attacked the two-seaters, but all was clear. The rest of the formation closed up, having also seen the Huns. We worked our way east and into the sun, and when about 2,000 feet above them, we dived to attack. He saw me, swung round, and I found myself sitting on his tail, both my guns going hard, and the Hun observer firing hard at me. I found this rather too hot for my liking, so pulled away, just as another of my people came down like a stone onto the Hun. I looked towards the other Hun, and saw him going down east, with two camels hanging on to him like leeches. I took another look around, for in a fight, if a pilot does not look round, he may be leapt on any minute, and to my immense surprise, saw an albatross scout about 200 feet below me, west of me, and flying towards me. I waited till he came to within a 100 yards of me, dived my machine steeply at him, pressed both gun controls, and waited till he passed through my telescopic sight. I must have ripped him open from front to back. 
I swung round, but I could not see him actually burst into flames, which is what occurred. Later I came down through the clouds, straight on top of a main road, with trees either side. Suddenly I met a convoy of about twenty grey lorries coming up the road towards me. Most of the lorries had open fronts, with two or three men on the front seats. We came straight for each other, head to head, when at about a hundred and twenty yards I opened fire with both my vicar's guns. The lorries stopped all in a hurry when the driver of the front lorry fell down in his seat. Men jumped from the backs of the lorries into the road, hesitated whether to run for it, lie down, or get back from whence they came. Sensible ones lay down pretending to be hit. Foolish ones ran for the ditch, presenting a good target as they ran, while the most foolish tried to clamber up into the lorries, presenting a glorious stationary target for my two vicar's guns. They must have had casualties, but to what extent it was impossible to say, as they all lay still, the shot and the survivors. Accompanied by Lieutenant von Helgesen, who was detailed as expert observer, I went up in my big monoplane and headed directly south, in the general direction of Paris. Previously, on Sunday, we flew across Paris and dropped three bombs. One failed to explode. Another dropped on the roof of a house and set fire to it, and a third fell on a boulevard and made a big hole. But we flew back to our lines in time without being molested, and we were so high the rifle fire didn't reach us. After flying for more than an hour, we passed directly over the English headquarters, and I was able to locate the positions of the commander-in-chief and his staff. When we then swept across the French positions, we paid special attention to the location of their artillery, much of which was massed in places of woods and behind buildings and hedges. The lieutenant made rough sketches of everything. I was intently watching the country when suddenly the lieutenant pressed my arm. He pointed upwards. There, coming at full speed directly towards us, is a big Bristol biplane. It was evident from the start that he was far speedier than we were. I tried to climb upwards, realising that when he got over me, he would drop a bomb and we would be blown to atoms. But the Bristol held me for speed and soon was directly over our heads. I was scared that the bomb was coming and I thought every minute was to us our last. I saw a flash alongside of me and thought... For a moment the end had come, but it was the lieutenant shooting with his automatic pistol, and they veered off. The plunging of the airplanes made accurate shooting difficult, although one shot struck my plane. It was very evident that the Englishman was shooting to disable our motor, and we were doing the same thing. The lieutenant again touched me and pointed thousands of feet higher, there coming at tremendous speed, was a small Blériot monoplane. I felt certain now that the end was in sight, but the lieutenant kept firing in return as calmly as on the firing range. Suddenly, however, German troops appeared below us and they began firing at the enemy, and the Blériot and the Bristol, ammunition exhausted, sailed off to the south, not harmed. However, 
I would not want to go through such an experience again. Captain Baron Manfred von Richthofen failed to return from a flying raid on the Somme on April the 21st. According to the unanimous declarations of those accompanying him and the observations of various spectators on the ground, Captain von Richthofen pursued an enemy battle plane to the ground. He was at low altitude when apparently a defect in the motor forced him to land behind the enemy lines. As the landing was effected without mishap, there was hope that Captain von Richthofen was captured unhurt. Reuters' report of April 23rd, however, no longer leaves any doubt that Captain von Richthofen met his death. Since Captain von Richthofen was the pursuer, he cannot well have been hit by his opponent in the air, he appears rather to have fallen a victim to a chance hit from the ground. These stories remind me that, as we approach the 11th of November, it is the time of the year when I wear a bright red poppy of remembrance. The symbolism is one that stretches back to the Napoleonic Wars, when a writer of that time first noted how the poppies grew over the graves of soldiers, but it came into more prominence during the First World War from where today's tales originate. The poppies were the first flowers to grow over the churned earth and freshly turned earth of war graves, and on the 3rd of May 1915 they inspired the Canadian physician Lieutenant Colonel John McRae after witnessing the death of his friend and fellow soldier the day before, to write the poem In Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow, Between the crosses, row on row, That mark our place, And in the sky the larks, Still bravely singing fly, Scarce heard, amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. On January the 28th, 1918, John McRae himself died at the military hospital in Wimeru and was buried there with full military honours. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.